Hello, and welcome to another edition of Barbarians at the Gate. I'm Jeremiah Jenny, and with me, actually live, in person, in Beijing, direct from the United States, or what's left of it, <laughs> David Moser. So nice to see you, Jeremiah. Uh, to long story short, it's December, what's today? December 4th. So we have a new president of the United States. U.S.-China relationships has a glimmer of hope. I'm back in probably one of the safest places on the planet, so I'm very happy to be here. And very happy to, to move ahead in our podcast project. Yeah, I'm really excited, too. We've been doing this for the better part of a year, and this is the first time we've actually been in the same room the entire time. And while I love Zoom as much as the next person, live is always better. Another thing, too, is we actually can actually do guests now as well without having to log into three different protocols. So in the room, in the man cave here, we have an, uh, an another live person, a, a really uh, great guest, a perfect guest, Ma Matthew Hu, Hu Xinyu, who I've known for many, many years, and he's been very active in the Beijing community with the Cultural Her Heritage uh, Preservation yes. uh, Organization and in working with all sorts of projects to uh, preserve, document, and protect uh, Beijing cultural heritage and the, and the Beijing Hutong. Um, so you've you've been a stellar figure in that uh, in in that area ever since I've been in Beijing, and you're probably one of the most uh, noted and uh, knowledgeable. In fact, your knowledge is encyclopedic about the Beijing history, the history of Beijing. Tell us a little bit about uh, your other activities and what you're doing right now. Well, uh, thank you, David. Thank you, uh, Jeremiah, for inviting me to this podcast. And uh, this is my first time doing a, a live podcast, so it's uh, very exciting. Uh, for the past uh, 14 years, uh, I have been doing cultural heritage preservation and uh, uh, the promotion of traditional Chinese culture, uh, mainly uh, to my um, Chinese friends, uh, not not so much targeting to uh, foreigners, but I think uh, this is important because uh, for local people to know our local culture is more important than foreign um, aid. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can't really uh, always rely on foreign aid for in this aspect. So that's why I'm working more on the, uh, the local communities. But uh, I have been uh, receiving a lot of uh, encouragement from all my foreign friends, including the two of you. So great to have this opportunity to talk about uh, heritage preservation to um, more foreign friends. And I think it's a good time to do so. Uh, Beijing has undergone some very dramatic changes in the certainly in the last 10 years, yes. but even when you began doing this in the early part of the century. Uh, and that's one of the things we're going to dive in and talk about today. Yeah, I think one of the great things is that you've you've worked really hard over the as long as I've been in Beijing to help educate people about the city, about its culture, about its architecture. And I, I really get the idea that one of the best places to start is to kind of education for the local community, get them to really appreciate what they have and what can be lost. And but I also think too that one of the things I, I really have admired about your career has been the way you've been able to build a bridge between you know, the, the stories, the information you give to a local community, and yet also be very willing and really capable of doing the same thing when called upon for an international audience as well. And I think that's, that's a really tough thing to do because I, I think those are two, kind of, there are two separate audiences with two separate demands. And I think my, I really was just curious, when you're talking about, when you're talking about cultural heritage and preservation, with a local audience versus an international audience. 
what's the is, what's the difference there? H- how to kind of how to kind of calibrate or or adapt the information you have to a particular audience? And is, is, are there things differently? Are there things that you do differently for these two kinds of uh, two kinds of constituencies? Yes, obviously, uh, I think people will make different decisions. Uh, will uh, have different ideas when they. Uh, have different perspectives. Uh, I always remember the fir- very first time I was interviewed by uh, international media is actually CBS uh, and uh, uh, 2006 in August when uh, I just started formally uh, working full-time for a, a Chinese NGO on heritage preservation, Beijing Cultural Heritage Protection Center. And I was um, interviewed by a journalist uh, live in the Hutong uh, about uh, the demolition of part of the Hutong. Uh, so uh, I think at that point I, I mentioned to the journalist, I made a, maybe a, about a half an hour um, uh, statement about why we should preserve the Hutong. As soon as we finished uh, the interview, there's a guy just uh, standing by our side, perhaps um, observed all, all the interview and he came to me, he said, what did you say to those foreigners? <laughs> and I said, uh, I just uh, told them that we should preserve the heritage. And then this guy came over to me explaining why he want to leave, because, uh, you know, leave the place, because it's, uh, it's shabby, it's not, uh, uh, the hygiene is not very good. And uh, most importantly, the, the quality of the houses was uh, endangered. And in fact, he told me that um, uh, just uh, a month ago, uh, during the raining season, uh, part of the house collapsed just without notice. And uh, luckily, nobody was indoors, so nobody was hurt. Uh, so I think at that point, uh, I started to understand that really people have different perspectives about the same issue. Um, yeah, that's actually something I would like to ask you about. Um, I first, When I first met you, um, one of the interesting things about Beijing was the tension between the, uh, the developers, you know, a wrecking ball and, and how were they destroying vast swaths of the hutong throughout the city and the people, the preservationists who wanted to, to preserve it. And you, of course, were in the vanguard of that. Yeah. We were sending uh, foreign interns into places like the Cultural Heritage Preservation NGO. If it's, is it an NGO? I think it is. Yeah. And um, other places. And what was interesting at the time, I remember, for, for example, one project uh, that they wanted to tear down or create a sort of underground shopping mall in, in, uh, in the, the bell tower uh, street, the they wanted to do a time museum. They yeah. called it, uh, and there was so much uh, local preservationist, but also just local ob- objections and and counter force to this to this proposal that they actually in the in the end canceled it. So, from your standpoint, in the last uh, ten years or so, who is winning that battle? As you said, there's different perspectives. Are are the the people be beginning to to sort of agree with some of the the, the reconstruction have have the have the different sorts of um, you know different different neighborhoods as they've been torn down and, and rebuilt have have pop, popular approval or is there still a kind of a, a tension there pushing back against the developers trying to take more of the hutongs? Um, I think the practice in the hutongs in the past uh, ten years really had changed a lot and. Uh, I think it's changing for a good direction uh, in general. Um, but uh, first of all, the, the thing is that uh, we, we don't really have that many hutongs to 
tear down and uh, sell for <laughs> for commercial development now. Um, because as as you know, the uh, the size of old Beijing is uh, 62.5 square kilometers. That's the size of the old Beijing within Second Ring Road. Mm-hmm. And uh, at this point, as we are speaking, I think there's perhaps only about 20 percent. Uh, I mean, 20 square kilometers, which is about 30 uh, percent of the old Beijing uh, that was are still. Oh, that's a, that's amazing! I didn't realize it was so small. Kind well, of, uh, I'm not I'm I'm not including uh, the Forbidden City, oh, the Temple of Heaven, right? Okay, uh, Zhongnanhai, just the residential, the Hutong, just yeah. the residential mm-hmm. Hutongs. So um, the entire old Beijing, if uh, still in terms of its fabric, mm-hmm. still uh, traditional, uh, it's no more than fifty percent either. Uh, wow. So lots of uh, places has already been developed. So that's one background we have to uh, understand. And the other thing is that um, uh, I think with uh, the government, uh, both central and the municipal, municipal government are paying more and more attention to the preservation of our own mm-hmm. heritage. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is very much in line with the, uh, the soft power, the, right. the cultural uh, revival, all the efforts that the government has been trying to push mm-hmm. in the past uh, few years. Yeah. So I think this is a very good thing. So luckily we don't see very many uh, confrontations uh, in the Hutongs anymore, but uh, there are still here and there a little bit uh, uh, this kind of pushback, yeah, mm-hmm. pushback for us to to be carefully uh, observe and uh, understand. Uh, I remember I always showed a map of to my students of certain areas of the, yeah. the of the Beijing hutongs, some of which were in yellow and some of which in blue, and the blue were the ones that were absolutely guaranteed to be preserved. And the yeah. government had said we want to yeah. preserve these, but as time went on, it seemed like those those. Uh, those protective areas were, were sort of compromised a little bit around the edges. Is there a baseline now? You say it's down to fifty percent. Have we got the? Have they got the actual amount that they're they're going to keep there permanently f- for cultural reasons, or or there's still more in uh, areas that might be in danger? All the uh, construction projects happening in the Hutong area, um, I, I would say ninety percent aimed at uh, regenerating this area. Mm-hmm. So in the name of preservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think my only concern is that some of those preservation efforts were not great right. uh, in terms of its methodology, in terms of its uh, uh, its notions behind. So uh, authenticity is still a, a big issue in my right. opinion. Does that, by the way, does that include the Qianmen Dajie place, which everyone uniformly seems to think is a travesty? It's It looks like a shopping mall. Um, the mo- most important thing is that uh, um, that commercially that project is huge failure yeah and we have uh, invested uh, so much money in there and uh, i don't think they are even able to cover the bank uh interest mm-hmm. uh, for for that uh project so i think that's a completely disaster well in a way i guess jeremy jeremiah and i and people like us would be happy to hear that but on the other hand it's still there's no way to turn back they've already renovated it to make it look like a you know a disney set yeah, I think one effort we need to do is that to make sure that no other places copy right. this model of development. You know, talking about the Tianmen Dajie mm. and some of the other areas that, I don't know if we would use the term preserved or even rebuilt, it's more like reimagined. 
Mm. Kind of not what it looked like, but what we wished it looked like or what it looks like on the TV show about it. And I think this really gets at a, at a real kind of interesting tension, mm. which is when they're being renovated or reimagined, rebuilt, for whom and by what standard? Now, authenticity is a tricky word, of course, mm. but one of the things I've often think when I work with students or with groups coming to Beijing is that very often the groups from outside of China, they want to see the quote-unquote real Beijing. Maybe you can tell me a little bit more perhaps about what groups from outside of Beijing but from China may want when they come to see Beijing. I get the feeling their idea of what a hutong should look like and the idea of what a, an international visitor wants out of a hutong may be a very different thing. Very different. Uh, I think that uh, uh, the, this group of students that you're talking about most likely may, might be uh, American students, or uh, I think they, they come to Beijing, they want to see people's life, and they imagine that people in Hutongs will be like that kind of uh, shabby, um, very um, not well-maintained uh, places. But for um, people from other provinces coming to Beijing, when they come to the Hutong, they would like to see uh, you know, places like Hohai, and they will come to one courtyard, and they would like to hear the guide to say, you know, this one worth millions or, you know, trillions. So that's the thing that they will be surprised. That's the thing they expect to see. I think that's a, that's a general expectation from people outside, uh, outside Beijing in China. That's fascinating. I wonder, uh, actually, I've always wondered about that. Maybe we could just tell, explain what you just said. Uh, the fact that those hutong uh, property, real estate, mm -hmm. is some of the most expensive in, in Beijing. And what, can you explain the market reasons for that? Well, first of all, I think uh, from urban planning perspective, um, the city uh, was designed to develop around one center. And so that makes the, the old city, which is right in the middle of the, that center, uh, the most uh, expensive land. So uh, many people who sell their courtyards not really sell selling the houses. They're really selling that piece of land. Mm -hmm. I think they're uh, they they should be uh, treasured, but mm -hmm. should not be valued in terms of its monetary value only. You know, sometimes it's it's a good thing because I know there are a few places um, not far from the Tiananmen Square, for example. They were not developed because they can't exceed a certain uh, height restriction. Mm -hmm. So for commercial development, it's not lucrative, which is why hmm. uh, the reason they were being preserved. Hmm. Ah, because there was no way to like make money off of building big, bigger buildings there. Yeah, yeah, for any developer, if they come in, they have to move all these people, and yeah. uh, that added up their cost. Right. Considering the the density of people living there, mm -hmm. so you have to pay not just by square meters, mm -hmm. but also by how many people in, living in the move. courtyard. Because you have to to. Uh, to compensate them for the loss of their, for the moving exactly. in the property. Uh, although many of them are not uh, legally the owner of the courtyard houses, but uh, they have the right to live there. Mm -hmm. So you're basically com compensating their, their, their right of living there. So um, they still be compensated quite high. What about the places like uh, Nanlo Guxiang and uh, maybe Wu Daoying and these places that are traditional hutong areas, but they've been what would you call it, Jeremiah? Commercialized, commercialized. but they've but they've tried to and maybe maybe actually Hohai is also an example in a way yeah. of a play that that has become very you know a, a center for nightlife, in a certain sense of attracting a lot of a modern young uh, you know educated people, yeah. but yet keeping the, the the feeling and the 
the style and the aura of Lao, of Lao Beijing, of the old Beijing. Has, has that been a sort of an unmitigated success or is there something else to think about that? Has that been financially successful? I think that Wudaoying uh, and Nanlogoxiang, these two places has one difference because Wudaoying uh, is mainly uh, commercialized, mm-hmm. but Nanlogoxiang has experienced uh, two more different approaches in terms of its uh, preservation and development. Mm-hmm. One of them is uh, the Yuhe project, mm-hmm. which is um, part of the government effort to regenerate a uh, canal from Hongmertiao uh, all the way down to uh, the old moat uh, mm-hmm. along the second uh, east second ring road. Okay. And uh, so that's one project. And I know a lot of people have been moved and uh, uh, many new uh, concrete uh, courtyard houses with basement has been built. Uh, so all these courtyard houses, in my opinion, are not real courtyard houses uh-huh. because they were not built with uh, traditional uh, craftsmanship. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the second uh, effort uh, was more, um, I think, appropriate in terms of its uh, approach. Mm-hmm. Uh, because in, um, uh, in recent uh, six years, uh, there has been an effort to regenerate three hutongs. Uh, among them, I know Yu'er hutong and Suoyi hutong. So many uh, local residences would have been compensated, but uh, they are not forced to move out. Mm. Instead, they will be offered a price on your property. So if you would like to accept it, you accept it, and then you move away. Um, but uh, for one courtyard, there will always be someone who doesn't want to move. Right. So they are fine with that. Ding Zhu sort of. Not it's quite. not called a Ding Zhu anymore right. because right. The, the entire purpose is not uh, really to commercialize it, mm. but rather to uh, regenerate it. The only Ding Zhu right now is our President Trump, oh, who oh, refuses oh. to leave the White House. But anyway, go ahead. Uh, the, the big white uh, nail house. <laughs> <laughs> the big white nail house. Very good. Okay. Uh, I think for, for Nanlogxiang area, I think it's called, uh, they have started this uh, development, they call it Wei uh, uh, Huan. Uh, microcirculation. Oh. So, uh, and then the courtyard, uh, they have uh, been able to release, uh, it's called Gong Sheng Yuan, meaning coexistence. Mm-hmm. So, uh, for those, uh, maybe half of the courtyard has been evacuated. Uh, those people compensated and moved away, so they left uh, some empty houses behind. Mm-hmm. So, the government will just uh, hire some designers or work with uh, a commercial contractor to uh, renovate mm-hmm. the courtyard, uh, well, part of the courtyard, and uh, rent it out as a, as a you know, kind of hotel mm-hmm. or Airbnb type of uh, business. Mm-hmm. So people can come to Beijing and uh, stay there. So that's a new mode. Uh, I, I have been talking to and interviewing some people who from the government uh, or from the state-owned companies who run this kind of business. So I think it's a very interesting... That's interesting. I'll just add a punctuation mark yeah, there. Yeah. So so this kind of ends this era of the, the pre-2008 Olympics that was so big in the news, which was Beijing residents being forcibly or pushed out of their homes. I think uh, that uh, I heard numbers like uh, more than a million people or a million and a half people were forcibly or evicted uh, for, the, for, for the Beijing Olympics. Does that number sound... Sound uh, right to you? That sounds unbelievable. That's the number was that was in the New York Times and other okay. places. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, sometimes media may 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 have just uh, decoded some information may not be uh, accurate. Right. Um, but I think in this case, because back in two thousand eight, I think the total number of people population of 
Beijing uh, is perhaps 16, 17 million. Mm-hmm. One million is a huge percentage. Yeah. That will make, make a big noise back then. Right, mm. so, but in, at any rate, the the, the days of the, the the forced relocations, and you know, I saw, uh, and maybe Jeremiah did too. You know, maybe back back then, you could walk around Beijing and see lots of places with uh, the old middle aged or the grandmas and grandpas out there with the signs uh, protesting being convicted, and they would push them into buses and and take them somewhere, maybe to the dark hotels or something. Those days are over, right? Nowadays, they've got a new model and they've got a, a, a you know a path towards commercialization or redevelopment that doesn't force the you know the the residents to actually leave. Yeah, I, as far as I know, I think most of the development in the hutongs are really focusing on regeneration uh, of the hutong kuta houses. Mm-hmm. Uh, they want to uh, regenerate um, healthier, uh, more um, holistic, built environment. And not really, they're not really looking at those houses as a, a source of revenue or mm-hmm. tax generating uh, business model. So I think that that's a good thing. And uh, in fact, uh, I know quite a few companies were founded, state-owned ones, uh, with government money uh, just uh, to run this kind of business. They started with cafes. They started with uh, you know this kind of uh, small-scale um, community-based activities, cultural activities. I, th- I think things are really making a change. Uh, although I, I still know a few places, not big, uh, but I know the developer signed the contract perhaps 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. So it's not something newly signed, um, but they're just trying to implement the contract. So there's uh, a few uh, Hutong places I know uh, still under threat. One of them I know quite uh, important, actually. Mm. Yeah, I think... What David's talking about, too, is this narrative that still exists outside of China that the hutongs are being bulldozed and that's just, this is the story of Beijing. And I still have people, even in 2020, who ask me questions about the hutong, and that's kind of the, that's their frame of reference. And I think one of the things about it, it is very much a, I think a, that was something that was very common 15, 20 years ago. It does feel to me, too, that after the Olympics, there was a new era also where I think that people began to think of the hutongs as commercially viable spaces. And so we saw them fill up with a lot of cafes and bars and stores and boutiques, you know, all over, especially like Dongcheng, the eastern district in the center of the city. And it it changed a lot of those neighborhoods. Sometimes it made them very vibrant and colorful neighborhoods, the kind of neighborhoods that do offer a certain at least to an international audience, a certain soft power appeal. But at the same time, I think a lot of local residents were very concerned that the year before they lived on a quiet hutong and now there's three cocktail bars, a jazz club, and another cafe that's open till four o'clock in the morning. By the way, Jeremiah, just to mention, this is up right up to date. I know of two jazz bars in Beijing that face that exact problem right now that were in the trendy hutongs, and now they're having to shut down or, 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 or close their performances at 10 o'clock. It's a residential area, and the people are getting uh, protesting, yeah. Yeah, and I think, I think what was interesting about that was, I think it was let go for a long time, and then, of course, around 2015, as there was became a new urban plan for Beijing and the municipality in general, and that called for a, a much stricter application of the preservation laws for the center of the city, we saw a lot of those businesses closed up, uh, sometimes overnight. And now I guess we're kind of into a third phase a little bit after that, where, okay, 
they closed up a lot of those businesses and now they have a this idea to kind of create these mixed use spaces. It seems like a really exciting I mean, I'm sure there are going to be problems, but it still seems at least like a, a more productive use of these spaces than we maybe have seen in the earlier eras. Well, uh, I have uh, uh, I have to say that uh, the close uh, the breaking up of those uh, hutong places in the past few years uh, is a very important uh, factor affecting our built environment in the hutongs. Personally, I feel that maybe you should. Uh, this this podcast is very geeky, and I think that's good. I mean, this is going to be a very Beijing centric podcast, but maybe you need to explain the the bricking up. Okay, sure. Uh, uh, I think that uh, just uh, goes back to your question about this uh, uh, cafes, bars, right. um, jazz bars, uh, restaurants in the hutongs, because a lot of investors see Beijing hutongs as a a lucrative opportunity, so they just come in, uh, they rent a courtyard, and they just uh, open up a restaurant. They they try their best to attract customers, which is a natural thing for a business. Uh, but I think that um, the local government they don't really have a policy in place for this kind of new change. So they were trying to learn and adapt. But in the meantime, uh, there's already some conflicts uh, between the local community's interest and the commercial interest. So uh, I know some local residents, they like the neighborhood, but then uh, they resist. Uh, they try not to rent their courtyard to some other businesses, but then they found out that they were being uh, surrounded by all these businesses. So the best thing for them to do, both financially and uh, for, their, for the health of their own sake, <laughs> is to move out. So I, I can see uh, uh, how uh, Nanlo Guxiang has changed from mm-hmm. uh, very beautiful, just a one bar uh, alleyway into a you know full of uh, uh, bars and restaurants. I think that uh, that's uh, uh, on the one hand showing that how uh, um, people have a general interest about uh, hutongs and they want to go there to uh, to spend their money. Uh, I think that's that's a good thing. On the other hand, is that uh, how to channel that to uh, how people can really you know, make the best use of their investment and their money. And also at the same time, preserve the Hutong uh, built environment. Uh, in, we don't have to call it authentic, but at least you know, <laughs> something that is uh, worth uh, you know, preserved. And uh, I think that uh, uh, many of these businesses opened up uh, part of the Hutong walls and they have changed the gates. Uh, in order to fit into their um, best business interest. Uh, so Hutong, at some point, it doesn't look like a Hutong anymore. It's just a very cheeky, uh, um, trendy bar area. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's, uh, that's the thing. Right. And, uh, and this breaking up is a very strong measure taken by the Beijing municipal government a few years ago. Uh, in my opinion, uh, I think it's... Uh, just like uh, riding a car. And uh, if David, you are driving the car, if you drive it nice, slowly, and uh, at, at, the red, uh, at the traffic light, you, uh, you know, break uh, and stop the car, you know, everybody doesn't feel a thing. But um, uh, if I drive the car 100 miles and uh, just uh, suddenly s- slow it down, and everybody will feel uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. I think that uh, the government just, uh, as I said, they didn't have a good, policy in place, mm. especially 
didn't have a good system to implement the policy in this kind of uh, places. So uh, that, you know, ended up with uh, with a mess in the、mm-hmm. Hutongs, and then all of a sudden we have a strong leader in the government decided to do it anyway.、Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I think that、uh, created、uh, the all the uncomfortable, you know, hearsays.、Uh, I hear a lot. So just for the benefit of the expats who are listening, so what are examples of this? We're talking about the the north、uh, alley there in、uh, in front of us,、uh, Sunny Twin.、Yeah. Where they, you know, suddenly, almost overnight, just、yeah. tore it all down and、yeah. completely got rid of all those structures that that that、yeah. sort of impinged into the many of the many of the hutongs in Dongcheng as well that people、yeah. were going to like Fangjia Hutong in that neighborhood. Right. But I I think that Matt Matthew I think you make a really good point, which is you know you you see how some of those spaces were used and in some cases、mm. you had a residential home and、mm. all they did was kind of knock out the wall facing the street. And then they would put a window and a door、mm-hmm. in there, and boom, you have like a store. Boom,、mm-hmm. you have a cafe.、Mm-hmm. And on one hand, you think now, if you tried to do that in almost any city, like London or New York, and like take <laughs> an apartment and like put a, yeah, it would never go. It would、yeah. never fly.、Mm-hmm. I think I think your your analogy though with the car is a really good one,、yeah. which is it. And this is kind of, I think somewhat true about a lot of Beijing's policies in terms of urban development. It's hard. It's hard to argue. Against the logic, yeah. But sometimes the implementation exactly could could be handled in a slightly different way. Different way, yeah. yeah, yeah I think yeah. I think I, I,、yeah. I, when I try to explain this to people and they ask about the bricking and <laughs> the urban renewal, I explain why it was done, and I think、yeah. almost everyone agrees. Like, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I, if I was a neighbor and somebody opened up a bar, opened it, it was like. You know, people were partying until 4 a.m. next to my house. I would have a problem with that,、mm-hmm. but it was just how some of it was handled. I think that's what caused a lot of the, the controversy. Well,、uh, just to, to add another aspect that we that is kind of in the background, but wasn't there also this link to this notion of of forcing or encouraging、uh, non-Beijing residents,、uh, ones with you know who had been migrant workers who or、uh, to to get out of the of the center of the city. To lessen population, but also to solve. So, what? Just maybe briefly mention what that aspect, and because there was always a suspicion that it was not、yeah. just a zoning issue; it was also a, an issue of getting rid of the, the what do they call it, the 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 the, the riffraff, duanren renwu, renzun. What what do they call it? Duanren renzun. I think that、uh, that is the same.、Uh, I can use the same analogy、uh, in this case. I think uh, uh, Liang Sichang,、uh, Professor Liang Sichang, has. Uh, had made a point、uh, when he was,、uh, you know, appointed as the deputy director of Beijing Urban Planning Commission or committee. Liang Sichang was the. Well, first of all, Professor Liang Sichang、uh, was a UPenn educated architect, the very first generation of Chinese architect, and、uh, he devoted、uh, most of his life,、uh, together with his wife,、uh, uh, Professor Lin Huiyin,、yeah. on the preservation and research of. Uh, architectural heritage of China,、mm-hmm. and uh, so they, when they were appointed,、uh, they were professor、uh, professors at、uh, Tsinghua University when Beijing was taken over by the communists in 1949, and、uh, they were appointed very important、uh, positions in the Urban Planning Commission. So he suggested to have two centers. So one is cultural center, which is based on the old city, because he see the old city of Beijing the greatest. City,、uh, in the world, not、uh, one of them.、Uh, it's just、uh, the greatest. 
He suggested to use some of the infrastructures left by the Japanese during the Second World War on the western part of the city to build a new center. So that way you can develop the economy and you can accommodate more population. You can build a thriving capital, but you're not really destroying the heritage. But we didn't listen. Uh, there are many reasons uh, we don't have time to really to go through them. But um, uh, as we were speaking about this Duanrenjun, this uh, push away uh, effort, was because uh, we had already attracted far too many people that uh, this uh, city can accommodate, and uh, more than uh, we, I think we we have about twenty two uh, or twenty three million permanent residents mm -hmm. of Beijing. And uh, other than that, we still have maybe four or five million uh, migrant workers mm -hmm. uh, who really serve this huge population. So that's uh, a burden, uh, not only the infrastructure, but uh, the transportation system, electricity, even water supplies yeah, right. can really right. sustain. So I think that's uh, the logic behind. Do, do you have any numbers? How many people ended up actually leaving the city at that time during those two years, I guess, right? I, I would say a lot of people. I don't really have a, a number in mind. Okay. Well, I think one of the things that happened too is they changed the rules for how you can lease and sublease some of those spaces in the Hutong. Yeah. That you, there was a time when people were divide. They were people were moving out of the Hutong and dividing up their home into like eight or nine subunits, and you had people kind of living in very small spaces you know, kind of not quite, yeah, like little, almost like little tenements. And that was something that the city wanted to get rid of. Partially yeah. it was this population, but part of it was also fire control and mm. public health. And again, it is, as Matthew said, I think it's a good point. I mean, mm. the implementation of this probably needed to be thought about a mm. little bit, mm. but I, I'm glad you kind of brought up Liang Sichung though, because he's a real, mm. he's a personal hero of mine. First mm. of all, his work in historic preservation in the city. Yeah. I love this image of Liang Sicheng, who was also the son of one of the most famous reformers, right. authors, journalists, Liang Qichao. Mm. And I, I, this, I love the image of Liang Sicheng and his wife, Lin Huiyin, during yeah. their weekends in the 1930s and 1920s, uh, tramping around like old temples, both in the city and out in the countryside, drawing these really detailed blueprints of these places. And I remember Liang Sicheng writing things like in like 1928, 1929, like we have to do a blueprint of this building because Beijing is modernizing so fast and if we don't do it, it'll all be gone. And I can't even imagine what he would think if oh he came God. to Beijing yeah. in 2020. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's a good, I mean, I, so that's the question I kind of want to ask you, Matthew. I mean, yeah. in some ways, Beijing has been transformed so much. Mm. And there's an argument you could make that someone like Liang Sichang, who who really prized a certain kind of preservation, mm. might have a lot of things that they're very different than his vision for what Beijing would look like. Mm. On the other hand, as an urban planner, mm. Beijing has grown from a city of, in his time, six or seven million people into a city that's now 26 or 27 million mm. people. What do you think he might say if he suddenly you know, showed up in 2020? <laughs> he will be so pissed off, I would say. <laughs> uh, in Chinese, say, uh, we will say that uh, he will be... Uh, <laughs> you know, there's a great book uh, I could recommend right now. Uh, this that The Chinese is just called Chengji. It's called uh, Beijing Record in English by Wang Jun. And uh, in there, in fact, there's some very nice uh, 
photos or images of some of the plans mm. that Liang Sicheng had for Beijing, among them being the city wall he envisioned as being a public space mm. that you could use where you could have movie theaters and parks and, and everything. Mm. I often think of him, uh, he's also sort of a hero of mine, of what Beijing might look like had they chosen to leave those places. Beijing would be a very the this, the middle the uh, the old city would be a very livable place and a very attractive place tourist wise and everything. Yeah, you, know, you think about those city walls. I mean, yeah. like you read accounts either Chinese travelers, uh, foreign travelers, up until the early twentieth century, that was the one thing everybody always said as they were approaching Beijing is, "Holy crap! Look at those look at walls!" Those walls, yeah. And they were in some ways emblematic of the city and. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it's 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 a very common cliche to go. Oh, what a it's a pity that the walls are down, but it is something to think about because yeah. Beijing. If the think about how uh, how excited everybody gets about the walls at Xi'an and some other yeah. other cities yeah. that preserve their walls, if Beijing still had its walls, it would not only be one of the architectural capital, oh, yeah. like architectural marvels of China, mm. but it really would, as Liang Sicheng thought, be mm. a truly Public global space. architectural yeah. uh, you know center. Attraction mm. for sure, mm. yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, I think one one thing I would like to point out is that uh, Wang Jun's role model, mm-hmm. uh, well, uh, was uh, well is Jane Jacobs mm. from the US. Mm. So I think he uh, had her in his mind uh, when he wrote the book about Beijing records. It, it is a very strongly recommended read. Did you have you collaborated with him? Do you do you know him? Yes, yes. Yeah, he. Um, he was very supportive of uh, all my efforts. Mm-hmm. So uh, every once in a while, I will invite him to give a talk to our volunteers. Mm-hmm. He would always make time to to speak to them. One thing, I want, uh, one last question I wanted to ask about: We've talked about the mm-hmm. 2008 Olympics, although there is at least scheduled a Winter Olympics coming mm-hmm. up that, for some reason, no one in Beijing seems all that excited about. But <laughs> I understand it's on the calendar. Um, but one of the things about this, and at least architecturally, is the fact that everybody in, when we think about Beijing, everyone's really excited about the imperial architecture and the Forbidden City and the Hutongs. But there's some really interesting things happening right now with the Olympics and some of the industrial spaces, mm-hmm. uh, particularly out at the Shogang mm. Ironworks. And yep. a part of this, I think, is to kind of how to repurpose some of these spaces, but also how to revitalize some of these neighborhoods mm-hmm. that have been hit really hard by the, the change in the economic mm. uh, basis of the city. And I was wondering if you've had a chance to see some of these plans or if you've seen some of the uh, the renovations. And, and what do you think about this as a, another way to showcase Beijing's architecture that doesn't involve a hutong, it involves like a factory of steelworks mm-hmm. or some of these older, some of these like 20th century spaces. So when we talk about heritage, I always think that uh, heritage is a representation of the culture of the time. So it's not really, it uh, doesn't have to be something, uh, you know, you can define by when it was built. Uh, sometimes uh, some architectural heritage um, might be very, very young, maybe just um, 30, 40 years, but it will be regarded as a piece of heritage because of its cultural mm. significance. I think industrial uh, heritage is definitely a very new area that we are looking at. Uh, in fact, when uh, Director Shan Dixiang, the uh, previous uh, Director of State and Administration of Cultural Heritage, who conducted the third national survey on our built heritage uh, ended uh, 2013, I believe, and uh, the total number uh, ended up as 
760,000 uh, built heritage across the country. Wow. Among them, many of them are built heritage, uh, I mean, uh, industrial heritage, uh, because we have uh, changed the parameter how we define mm. a heritage. So I think that that's a good sign. And uh, we are really um, becoming more professional, becoming more uh, open in preserving the Chinese heritage. So I think as an Asian city, um, we have many layers of history, not just imperial, yeah. but also republican, right. but also Mauer. industrial, maritime um, heritage. So that makes Beijing, will make Beijing great again, if we you know, look after them well. Does the 798-798 art district count as industrial heritage? Yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, okay. I think they are part of the uh, already national listed okay. uh, heritage. Huh, interesting. Um, great. Well, Matthew, this has been great. I, uh, there's so much left to talk about. I think we just scratched the surface. We definitely have to get you back someday. Uh, things happen in Beijing, and they're, <laughs> if that's not a, an obvious statement. It's like the city's motto. <laughs> yeah, Come things, to China. Things, things happen, happen in Beijing. Right? So I'm sure there'll be a lot more to talk about. And uh, yeah, come on again. We'd love to have you to talk uh, more, maybe some more about your activities and you know uh, what you're doing. Okay. Yeah, Thank you. Right. Yeah, thank you, Matthew, and thank you everyone for listening, and join us again on another episode of Barbarians at the Gate.